Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the week of January 28, 2009. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with scientist and writer Tyler Volk about his new book, CO2 Rising, the world's greatest environmental challenge. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Tyler Volk is Science Director of Environmental Studies and Associate Professor of Biology at New York University. CO2 Rising explains the global carbon cycle, what happens to all the individual carbon atoms that are constantly cycling into, out of, and through the biosphere. That might sound very dry, but Volk brings it alive. We spoke in his office at NYU. One of the mind-boggling facts that this is no local pollutant. Every burst of CO2 that goes into the air from some power plant uh, in Illinois is going to spread equally all around the world. And the same goes for CO2 emissions from China. They spread all around the world. And so it's unlike any other environmental substance we've ever looked at, perhaps. Right. I mean, Chernobyl is a terrible thing, but that is not a worldwide spread of what got spewed out there. Yeah, the winds the winds did spread it into, into Northern Europe, and so that was very bad, but it wasn't a pure worldwide equal spread. So what is there, how do you know that you are getting indeed a worldwide spread of the carbon dioxide? I mean, what kind of evidence do we have that the stuff I'm breathing out right now is actually going to diffuse, disperse worldwide in how long will it take? Uh, right. It's about a year. It's about a year. And the, the biggest bottleneck is between the two hemispheres, between the northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere. Uh, but the the real uh, sort of killer app data on this is the fact that if you go to the South Pole, and which is done and South Pole is one of the sites that has been monitoring CO2 for the longest, back to the late 1950s, and compare that to a northern hemisphere site, the one also from the late 1950s in Mauna Loa, Hawaii, the, uh, the big island of Hawaii, uh, the two curves fall virtually one on top of each other. So the CO2 from the northern, that's mostly being emitted in the northern hemisphere, is circulating all the way down, and it's going to be the same increased greenhouse effect at the, at the South Pole. It may not be the same temperature rise, that may even be larger, but the pure greenhouse effect locally from the increased CO2 is, is perfectly distributed worldwide. Okay, so you differentiated just now between temperature rise and the CO2 concentrations. So how exactly, I mean, everybody hears about global warming or climate change and rising levels of greenhouse gases. How are the two actually related? How do you get a temperature rise because of the increased levels of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Okay, Steve, so so the CO2 molecule absorbs uh, infrared radiation, which is the which is exactly the kind of radiation that the earth is using uh well, it doesn't use to cool itself. It's not a teleological thing, but the earth sends off to space. That's what keeps the earth's temperature not rising forever as the sun is coming in and heating up the earth. So these CO2 molecules are very special. They're not like the oxygen molecules or the nitrogen molecules in the atmosphere, uh, which do not absorb infrared, but the greenhouse gases do. All the greenhouse gases absorb infrared. And they, and they also release the infrared. So these act as blockades to the infrared leaving 
the atmosphere and going off into space, and the Earth warms up to send off even more infrared from the surface in order to uh, reach its state of uh, sort of a steady state with regard to space. You talk in the book about it, how three atoms in the molecule is really key to this whole business about the, the infrared and the, the vibrations within the molecule that are, that are responsible for dealing with the heat. And that's the difference because nitrogen is N2, right. hydrogen is H2, but once you start with CO2 or CH4 with methane or H2O in water vapor or O3 in ozone, the fact that you have three atoms in your molecule gives you a much wider uh, variety of vibrational modes. To, yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, 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 that's perfectly set for, for this level of discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so that, so because the thing can jiggle around, it, it acts as a, as a little sponge for heat, basically. Right. It, it, it's vibrational modes correspond to the vib- vibrational modes of the infrared radiation. Uh, that, that determines what kinds of radiation a molecule can absorb and re-release. So that turns these uh, molecules with three or more atoms in them in our atmosphere into the so-called greenhouse gases. So you did a really interesting thing in large portions of the book, and, 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 uh, and that is you kind of anthropomorphized, anthropomorphized? One of those two <laughs> words. Um, Sounds good. Well, a few particular carbon... Atoms and and your lead protagonist in the book is a carbon atom named Dave and Dave's adventures are are really quite amazing and and I don't mind the uh, I don't want to use that anthro word again I don't mind the uh, the imbuing of the inanimate carbon atom with sort of a personality because it really makes it more like an adventure story that you can grab onto just. Talk a little bit about how this particular carbon atom that you've named Dave uh, travels around the globe and what kind of adventures it has as a, as a member of the biosphere or, you know, occasionally not in the biosphere. Yeah. Okay. okay. So yeah, this was suggested by a friend of mine uh, because in a previous book, Gaia's Body, I had a three, just a three or four paragraph description of a carbon atom's travels. And he said, why don't you, have this in your in the new book, and I thought about it. Sound a little uh, nuts, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, yeah, it's, it's to see the circulation through the carbon atom's point of view might be a good way. Because in my own mind, working on the carbon cycle for a long time, you know, I I, I do track these carbon atoms in my own mind as, as a way to think about the CO two going into the ocean from the atmosphere, or going from the atmosphere back up into the ocean. So I start Dave off at the beginning of the book. Uh, in a molecule of uh, alcohol in a glass of beer, and that's where that's where Dave is starting off. And I track that um, atom of carbon backwards through the from the alcohol molecule that came out as a waste product from the yeast that brewed the beer. So what we might like as the effect in, in a beer or wine is an, is a waste product from the uh, from the organisms that are excreting this. And, the, and those yeast took in Dave as a atom of carbon in a maltose sugar molecule that, that the brewmeister made as part of the beer-making process. And I track this back uh, in a few paragraphs to being in the barley plant, being in the grain of the barley plant, in the starch of a barley plant, and then coming 
from the atmosphere as a CO2 molecule that entered the leaf of the barley plant. So if when you drink uh, beer, since beer doesn't keep too well, you can pretty well know that uh, in sometime in the year before that atom of carbon that's in the alcohol molecule you were drinking was in the uh, in the atmosphere is, is within a CO2 molecule. So if that's happening now in the beer, uh, earlier in the book I have Dave in the early 1960s being in a parcel of air that is traveling over Hawaii. So this is, you know, say 40, 40 some years ago. No problem with the carbon atoms. Uh, Dave has actually been in circulation for, according to my fictional story here, but it, it's very real. There, there, there is actually a Dave out there somewhere. You know, Dave, you know, we're going to find you. <laughs> but we know from the statistics that this is true. Uh, Dave has been around for 35,000 years uh, circulating among atmosphere and ocean. And so I have Dave and a CO2 molecule going through the infrared gas analyzer at Mauna Loa, Hawaii, and in a sense participating in the discovery of the uh, increasing amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. And by the way, I want to mention I, I, the, the word Dave is not purely arbitrary. It comes from Charles David Keeling and his uh, science friends and colleagues used to call him Dave. And he would, uh, was often, well, they, the, the CO2 increase at Mauna Loa, Hawaii is, is, we know that from Charles David Keeling, from Dave Keeling's efforts. Uh, he died a few years ago, but in some ways he was the father or grandfather of, of all our understanding of the Earth's carbon cycle. So in a way it's, it's an honor of him. And you talk about Dave, the carbon atom being measured in this gas analyzer in Hawaii, but it was Charles David Keeling who actually did that measurement. Right. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. And then the measurement was corroborated in uh, Antarctica. Antarctica also. Yeah. And, and now we have it being corroborated all over the world. But the first two places were um, the Mauna Loa, Hawaii and Antarctica. And that was key because you, you could see from that, that in the Northern Hemisphere, the carbon dioxide was going up and down seasonally. So after the first half year or so, you could see, gee, the CO2 is going down. But that was because it was catching it at the photosynthetic time of year in the northern hemisphere. But the main point is that the... Which means that the, the green plants are taking up the carbon dioxide yeah. to make the sugars. Right. And then they're getting rid of it again, and you get this little kind of... Well, wiggly line, but the overall trend is up. The overall trend's up, yeah. This this wiggly line that you refer to, that does turn out to be a couple percent of the entire atmosphere CO2 on an, on an annual basis. And it, one of the messages from that is that the vegetation and the bacteria that are releasing the CO2 from the soil, the vegetation is taking it up from the atmosphere into the sugars. That is such a powerful force that the the living things are such a powerful factor in the Earth's carbon cycle that they shift, they, they can remove and replenish several percentage of the Earth's entire CO, atmospheric CO2 uh, during the course of this six month uh, up and down, six months up and six months down cycle. And you have other uh, smaller players in this drama. Besides Dave, you have Iseal, who... Um, is, is a really interesting character because I seal the carbon atom is trapped in a gas bubble 
in the ice in Antarctica for how many thousands of years? Yeah, so ice seal was released into the Earth's biosphere at the same time Dave was from a limestone, from the calcium carbonate of a limestone cliff in the Dordogne Valley of southern France, about the same time that we have the earliest, the very earliest cave art uh, in, in the human prehistory. Uh, but ice seal didn't last very long in the biosphere. She got trapped in this uh, in an ice core, so she's been sitting in this ice core for the 35,000 years until fairly recently scientists uh, released her when they were analyzing these bubbles trapped in the ice core, and that gives us information about what the CO2 level was in Earth's atmosphere, actual sampling of the CO2 of Earth's atmosphere 35,000 years ago due to ice seal and her companions' release in in recent years. And then these other players, now these guys are really interesting because you have a couple of other carbon atoms, methanol, methanol. and choline, yep. and there's one uh, more. Euliver. Euliver, right. Euliver. <laughs> and now they're different. They're different. Talk about why they're different and what what they mean in this whole story. Yeah, so as it, you can tell <laughs> from the names, these carbon atoms came from various fossil fuels, uh, methane, methanol, oil for oliver, and coal for choline. So I, I use them to emphasize the difference between a fossil fuel carbon atom that is coming out of the ground, which Dave did too, in a sense, from the limestone cliff, but these fossil fuel carbon atoms, we dug up to burn fossil fuels to fuel our world civilization. And I do compare the total amount of fossil fuel carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere with nature's flux of carbon coming into the biosphere due to the limestone dissolution or, or volcanoes. And we are currently exceeding the natural flux of entry of new carbon by about a factor of 20. So you could, cause we, you can't say that nature is not putting carbon up into the circulation and that we are doing it. No, nature's doing it too, but it's doing it only about 5% at the rate of which, of what we are now, um, effecting in terms of the flux of carbon. And it's that carbon flux that is what we're now dealing with. Right, right. Because all those extra carbons are being released that would have possibly gone into circulation, but at this much slower rate, much, much fewer in any given year, and they would have been in a, in a kind of a steady state with what's going back into the uh, abiotic part of the planet. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, boom, we've got all this stuff because of our industrialization. And here we are, the upshot is things are getting warmer. Yeah, things are getting warmer. Uh, we know from these measurements from the ice cores with Iseal and her companions from various ages of ice that the before 1850, the CO2 in the atmosphere was very steady for about 10,000 years going back in time. So even though the natural processes, the vegetation, the bacteria, the soil, are enormous um, fluxers of carbon, in fact, there are larger fluxers of carbon than than our fossil fuel release, but we, we can see that they would have been in balance for the 10,000 years going back in time, and, and, and now we are putting this fresh CO2 into the atmosphere. 
and it starts circulating around. It doesn't. Well, one of the points is that it doesn't just stay there. The atmosphere is not just this closed box that you're we're stuffing full of a gas and it stays there. Um, the atmosphere's increase is only about half of what we're putting up into the sky, and that's an interesting number because were it ninety percent, then we'd be in a lot more trouble. But were it ten percent, we would barely think about it. We so, might not even have noticed it too yeah, much. Yeah, right, right. But at 50%, it's interesting. We're not even really sure where that 50% that's being released into the atmosphere where it doesn't stay in the atmosphere. We're not really sure where it goes. Uh, well, yeah, some, some is, yeah, some is going into the ocean. But as you point out, there is, there, there are mysteries still there about what the land e- ecosystems are doing, uh, to, to this, to the CO2. We, we know that when we cut down forests, when we deforest, uh, various places, or that, that's a release of CO2 into the atmosphere from the decay of the twigs, or if the forests are burned for, for farmland, that's a release of CO2. But on the other hand, places near, near where you and I are talking in, in New York State and Massachusetts, Vermont, there's places where the forests are growing, and that's, that's, uh, being a net carbon storage. So when you add all those up, the deforestation is a little bit more. But we also know that somewhere else in the vegetation, CO2 is being taken from the atmosphere in a net, in a net uptake that's not, it's still debated whether it's primarily in the tropics or primarily in the boreal forest or the northern hemisphere. There's technical papers being written on these various subjects. So I, I, you know, I don't have, um, this is not important for us. It's important. For us, but it's not important for the for, for, the, for the big pictures. And uh, we should also note that just because the ocean is doing a terrific job at possibly soaking up a lot of this mm. CO two, mm. that's not without consequence because it changes the pH of the ocean. Yeah, yeah, and that's becoming more and more of a concern as, as people are realizing that there's not just the greenhouse effect of CO two being a greenhouse gas and warming the earth up. But there's a direct chemical effect of it's dissolving in the ocean as carbonic acid, and this is going to affect many marine creatures in, in the coming decades. I do want to say about the soaking up process, it's somewhat remarkable that this, this 50% um, soaking up that's happened has been remarkably constant over, well, since we've had our measurements for the 40 years, and that is... Uh, it's, it's hopeful in the sense that it allows us to make some fairly good predictions into the future. Uh, you know, we have to go into details of the carbon cycle, but at least we can, we, we can know nature is behaving fairly predictably so far. The long-term picture could be different, of course. So, uh, <clears throat> let me, let me ask some questions that I know I'm going to get listener mail about, and they're, they're going to go something like this. So what's the problem? So it's going to get warmer. Isn't that good? You know, it's freezing today. I wish it were a little warmer. Uh, maybe the trees like it warmer. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll grow better. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll grow better and soak up some of that CO2 faster. Maybe the whole thing's going to be self-regulating. Why yep. are we so worried about it? How do we know that if we start messing around with it, trying to fix it, we just won't make it worse somehow? Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't think we should start messing around fixing it in the sense of sending mirrors up into space. In fact, I make some arguments why that's not going to happen, because if we can't even agree on CO2 now, the world's nations are not going to agree upon how much to try to turn the thermostat back. 
particularly when some when the crops might be growing better with higher CO2 right now when the temperature effects haven't kicked in fully. But to answer your question why we should be concerned, even with a global temperature rise that's being predicted, let's say by 2050, of probably around 2 degrees C, one should understand that at the in the ice age, the depths of the ice age, the earth was colder on a global average by about 5 degrees C. From what it is today. From what it is today. And yet it was massively different with ice sheets. Well, where you and I are talking right now in New York City uh, would have been covered with a, an ice sheet that was taller than the Empire State Building that would have been right here you know, the 20,000 years ago. Uh, and, and, and the distribution of trees and all kinds of organisms these distributions were very different from what they are today. So if you think of going in a warming direction of 2 degrees C compared to a cooling direction of 5 degrees C, one can say that we might be changing the Earth to like 40% of the kind of change that went on between the Ice Age and now or going back in time. And so a, a 2 degree change, which is about 4 degrees F on a global average, uh, is, is going to be very significant in terms of changing the, the distribution of vegetation, changing the kind of climate zones that certain areas have. Wind patterns can change, so where rainfall happens is going to shift. So there, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, another question that I know is going to come in, because they come in whenever we do this kind of subject. Um, you got this IPCC that's a UN thing, the International Panel on Climate Change. Right. It, that that's not a scientific organization. That's a political organization. That's the UN. They have their own agenda and their agenda. <laughs> but let me, let me channel some listeners. Their agenda is to make the United States poorer. And why should I believe their statements about climate when it's not really a scientific organization? Okay, well, there are thousands of scientists involved in this IPCC effort. So even though it's funded by the UN, there are thousands of scientists involved. And scientists are a pretty competitive, contentious bunch. And there's a lot of young scientists that could make their names by proving the other findings for, for the last decades wrong. And so the fact that these predictions of warming and run by you know, a, a dozen different models all over the world, any one of which would love to prove that the other models are wrong. Uh, you know, we have to see science as a, a kind of an evolutionary process in, in terms of variation and natural selection. So, so I'm saying, there. I'm saying, uh, yeah, I got a problem. Because so, the people who don't buy global warming also don't buy evolution. So I'm so, saying, okay. But carry on. <laughs> carry on. Uh, so, so the self-correctingness of the process. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, de there's debates about the actual impacts of the CO2 on climate. But what I'm trying to do in the book is to get people to understand the carbon cycle because I find that, at least for myself and for people I talk to, that if that's well known, these other concerns you know, fall into place more even though the details of the warming are not known. The fact that it will warm and will make effects is enough, and 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 that really is established scientific fact. You have some really interesting graphs in the book that show these correlations between wealth and CO two production. Yeah, 
And there's yeah. a third thing in the in the uh, in these graphs. You got wealth, CO two production, and energy and energy, right? Energy, right. yeah. And and I and I look at these not on a uh, a country level, but a per capita level, because countries vary in their populations. Right, so like China is now the largest CO two producer, but on a per capita level. Yeah, and this really gets me going, Steve. When I start reading in the paper that China has now surpassed the U.S. as the CO, number one CO two emitter, and they don't seem to be willing to do anything about it, uh, but it's one one point two, one point three billion people in China, and if you look at their per capita, they've they're about one fifth or one fourth the U.S. So, so this is known that yeah, the U.S. is relatively wealthy, and we use a lot of energy, and we emit CO two. When you graph it out of the per capita of the U.S. compared to the per capita numbers for the world, it's more than just a, a subjective sense of yeah, this is how it is. You re- the correlations are, are are really phenomenal. That that the U.S. is between four and five times the world average per capita income, between four and five times the world average per capita energy com- consumption, and between four and five times the world average per capita. CO2 emissions. And then you look at a place like China, which is just now, despite its phenomenal growth in recent decades at 9 or 10% per year, is just now reaching about the per capita world average on all those factors, energy consumption, wealth, and CO2 emissions. And they clearly want to do more. And this is really um, a, a serious thing to think about because Africa, for example, is you know, way down there, barely off the graph. And India, India too, which is now in the top 10 CO2 emitters, is, is nowhere near the global per capita emissions. I mean, the world, the, for a country, for example, of what the world's average country is, is China or Mexico or Turkey. I mean, those, those are the sort of, the av- the world average is, is, is those countries. Uh, right. And hiking it up is the U.S., Canada, European Union, right. Australia, yep. New Zealand, and Japan is and in Japan. there too. Those, those, those are the ones that are significantly above the the, the global average, and others are too. You know, Russia's above, but uh, those those are the ones. So those are the models for the where the, the world should be going. And and one of the uh, sort of major uh, perplexing uh, graphs that's on my mind every day. In fact, I was just talking to an economist this morning. If you extrapolate the gross world product, the, the world economic activity, and it's been uh, just just phenomenally consistent at about a 3.1, about a 3% growth rate over the last 30 years. You extrapolate that to 2050, and you get a world economic activity that's four times higher than today, and people say that, and many people just say, it's not, it can't happen. You know, four times, you know, the cars, the, the, the computers, the, the the agriculture. I mean, of course, you have to look at these in great detail. But the, what that means for 2050, when I've worked out the numbers, assuming a world population of 8 or 9 billion in the year 2050, is that if this world economic growth rate continues to 2050, the way it has been in the past 30 years, you get a average person in 2050, an average person in the world in 2050, being like today's average European or Japanese. So it would take this growth rate just to get the average world of 2050 up to today's Europe or Japan. Presumably today's Europe or Japan is not going to be enough for 
a 2050 European or Japanese or U.S. So the whole world is not going to even be at Europe or Japan today in 2050. So many people are still going to be poor. So Steve, I have concluded that I have to support that pace of growth to 2050 just to make the world a better place for the billions that are in poverty now. Therefore, the problem is going to be how we're going to do that in terms of our energy needs and what that is going to mean for CO2 emissions and how we can perhaps hold CO2 emissions constant during that period while there's this growth rate, bringing in the renewable energy systems or, or rethinking the world in some fundamental way. So we have a tremendous challenge ahead of us to bring the world's peoples out of poverty, increase the wealth all over, which seems to be needed by people and desired by people, and at the same time keep the earth safe in maintaining it in a climate regime in which it's not throwing huge ringers into the climate system that, uh, is, that we are not controlling. So what's the good news? Why should I leave your office today feeling, you know, like everything's not lost? I wrote the book and came away feeling more optimistic than I was when I started because it's going to be slow. It's, it's going to, it's, there's been a lot in the news recently, but the CO2 rates are, are going up slowly and the climate change is going to be slow and and changing the industrial situation of the world is going to be slow. And so we we have time in the sense that we can't do very much immediately. The CO2 is going to keep going up for a while. And so we have to watch it very carefully, watch what climate is doing, understand it a lot better, and bring online in a gradual but persistent way to the best of our industrial abilities, new kinds of energy systems to not have the CO2 emissions from fossil fuel combustion increase as much as they might were everything just to go um, uh, you know, hog wild without any kind of restriction or any kind of consciousness about it. So I'm very hopeful that that the human consciousness, which is really awakening to the situation, can work these issues out in time. I became more optimistic. Tyler Volk has produced a couple of videos that explain some of the key concepts in his book, CO2 Rising. Just go to YouTube and search for Tyler Volk, V-O-L-K. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, cows that get called by name by dairy farmers produce more milk than unnamed cows. Story two, drinking coffee regularly is associated with a decreased risk of urinary tract infections. Story three, a California woman gave birth to octuplets this week. That's eight Story four, the far side of the moon may once have faced Earth. 
Time's Up Story 1 is true. Bessie will produce an average 258 more liters of milk over the 10-month lactation period than will cow number 17, in England at least. That's according to research published in the journal Anthrozoos, which runs studies about the interactions of humans and other animals. For more, check out the January 28th item on our blog by Jordan Light called Cows with Names Make More Milk. Story four is true. The moon's far side may once have faced Earth. That's according to research to be published in the journal Icarus. The evidence has to do with the distribution of craters, which should consistently smash into one side preferentially, like rain hitting your windshield as you drive. For the full discussion, see John Matson's January 23rd article on our website called Flip Flop, Did the Moon Do a Turnabout? And story three is true. A woman in California did have octublets this week. Lisa Belkin in the Times has a nice piece on the challenges the mother will face as she apparently plans to breastfeed. She'll need to produce some two gallons of milk per day. Can it be done? The article concludes yes, but it won't be easy. Then again, neither was having the eight kids in the first place. All of which means that story two about coffee being related to a lower risk of urinary tract infections is totally bogus. But what is true is that regular coffee drinking is linked to a decreased risk for dementia later in life. That's based on a study of more than 1,400 people followed for an average of 21 years, published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. People who had three to five cups a day had a 65% lower risk of dementia than those who had two or fewer cups a day. Now, this is a correlational study. Future studies will try to see whether taking up coffee drinking can ward off dementia in someone who otherwise might develop it. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Check out Siam.com for the latest science news, including our look at the science musings of the late John Updike. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. (laughs) 